So Dominic finished his first year of kindergarten. Yay, Dominic! <laughs> and at the end of kindergarten, they had a, he went to Cunningham across the street, they had a did school dance, which I was not aware of that elementary <laughs> schools had dances. Um, I thought, my mind was like, is this going to be like a junior high dance where they have to wash the walls beforehand because everybody is standing like this. But it was a little more, it was still, it was like very clustered, different groups and a lot of moving around. It was really dark. It was, it was nice. There was popcorn, all sorts of fun. And every once in a while, there'd be a song that the kids recognize and they just get out and just go crazy. It's amazing <laughs> to watch a kindergartner dance. Uh, it's just like all out. You know, there's no holding back. There's no holding back at all. It's amazing. It's amazing. There's so many. It doesn't matter if it's like a pop song on the radio. Usually, they, my, my kids, I'll not speak for others, love like really fast, happy, joyful songs. And they're like, this is a cool song. Let's listen to it. And like, no idea what it is. And then it's like a nice love bell. It's like, oh, boring. Get it off. Next channel. <laughs> Next channel. Um, so the, an absolute infatuation with a lot of pop songs, because most pop songs are really designed for six-year-olds. Um, and it's great. It's great. They're, they're clear and repetitive. There's a chorus that you can repeat over and over again, and it comes back to over and over again. They're catchy, and so you can just kind of, you mumble sing it once or twice, and then you have it. Um, which is it's fantastic. But there's also like songs that are aimed for kids, which are, are different but fun in their own way. Uh, usually those are songs, like the most popular song for the last year or so has been this one called Baby Shark. Some of you may have heard of it. Um, Dominic, you want to come sing it with me? No, okay. Do you, have, do you want me to sing it for everybody? <laughs> I didn't know. So it's basically, there's like, baby shark. All right, you have to do. Um, I don't want it stuck too much in your head. But you have this idea. Um, and this song is about, it's like, there's a baby shark, there's a mama shark, there's a daddy shark, there's a grandma and a grandpa shark. So there's these different roles of a family, roles in a child's life that they can recognize and they can like, take on in a certain way and move around. Um, and so there's this, this powerful way of, of speaking into this, this phenomenon and being participating in a different way. And it's very similar to what we're going to talk about the Trinity today. Nobody, you never didn't expect to hear, the Trinity is like Baby Shark. Um, <laughs> but, but we'll get there. We're continuing, my friends, our series on the Song of Songs titled God's Love Song. This often overlooked book at the center of the Bible has been a source of controversy over the years, but also a source of inspiration and discovery. It can be central to our faith. As an early church father described it, it is the song sung by the Holy Spirit at the marriage of the church and Christ. Now, the, old, the ancient church would talk about the Trinity with this word perichoresis, which it just tries to... Perichoresis. Kind of, it's a nice, thank you. Thank you for participating. Um, it's, an old, it's an old Greek word, but it comes from the word rotation. And it was from, from a dance. And so it was a kind of ancient dance. Actually, like square dancing, good old-fashioned square dancing, it mimics a lot of ancient dances. And so this way of, of changing partners, of moving around, there was, um, of, in that kind of way, and this, this changing roles and shifting around. And so perichoresis was this way to describe the Trinity. Describe the God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Spirit, as this, as this shift, as this dance, this interweaving of persons and beings. The ancient formulation of the Trinity as three persons in one being is, comes off very different in English than it does in Greek. 
Because in, in, in English, a person, you are all, you're a person, you're a person, you're a person. In Greek, person is a, is a mask. It's a pers- persona is more, more literal. It's the, you have the, the famous image of, of ancient Greek theater with like the smiley face and the frowny face. And so because there wasn't projector devices, people would wear these masks so, during the plays. And so people would know what was going on and how they were feeling. And that's the language of the Trinity, the, the three persons, the persona of the Son, the persona of the Father, the persona of the Spirit. But they're moving together. They're not fixed in this, in this one way. The Song of Songs throughout history has been a source for Trinitarian thought and discovery. That first verse, you remember from a few weeks ago, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, which doesn't seem like it has to do with God. Many people have seen as a description of the Trinity, including Bernard of Clairvaux. He writes, if, as is properly understood, the father is he who kisses, the son is he who is kissed, then it cannot be wrong to see in the kiss the Holy Spirit, for he is the imperturbable peace of the father and the son, their unshakable bond, their undivided love, their indivisible unity. So we have this analogy of of the person who kisses, the one who is kissed, and the kiss between them, of the Trinity. And yet the, the Holy Spirit is not absent and the one who kisses, nor the father absent and the one who is kissed. As J.D. read from, from Song of Songs 2, my beloved is mine and I am his. Beyond the perfect vision of the triune God, beyond being present with God, almost all identity is filled with a level of anxiety. Who am I? Who am I at my core? This existential crisis faces most teenagers about the same time they start getting nervous about dances. (laughs) There's a a deep connection. You get nervous about dances because you don't know what you should do. You don't know how you should act. You don't know if you're good enough. You don't know if people are going to like you. When when you're still a kid, you don't care. It's fun, and so you do it. And it's fun to, to dance with your friends. It's fun to move your body around. And as we age, we start doubting ourselves and questioning ourselves and, and not understanding who we are. There is here in, in the Song of Songs instead a perfect vulnerability. My beloved is mine and I am his. As one of my teachers wrote, what he wants is her and what she wants is him, exclusive, without remainder. The song of songs shifts back to lilies that we described before, the lilies and the brambles, the lilies that are still beautiful, still fragrant, no matter the brambles of life. And yet, I, I want to rest on this verse, my beloved is mine and I am his. It's covenant language. It is the language of the covenant, the language we see in Genesis over and over again, the language between God and Adam and Eve, the language between God and Noah, the language between God and Abraham. I will call you Abraham, Abram of the Chaldees, to go from this place to a new place. You will be my people. It is the, the covenantal language of Jacob. It is the covenantal language of Moses. And the promise. As well, it is the language of Jeremiah, which I will quote. I will surely gather them from all the lands. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. It is the language of Ruth 
that Ruth declares for Naomi. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. There is, there is a promise here. A covenant is not a contract that is looking for a prophet. There is a mutual submission in a covenant. The covenant between God and people. The covenant between people. As an offering of self to the other. All love is generous because all love is a gift. All creation is a gift of God. It does not need to be. Nothing needs to be. We don't need to be, and yet we are here. All creation is a gift, and so all relationships we have are a gift of that creation. More than being simply complex, Trinity shows us how God is love. God isn't love as a model for us to follow, but in sustaining the lives we have now, in sustaining us and being present here with us as the love between the Father and the Son, as the love between us here today. You are loved. At the source of any identity you can find or see is this offering of love. You are loved. You are created. You are here. You are the beloved of God, the creator of everything, the God who did not keep distant from us, but entered our world as human, was scorned and spit upon, killed and then rose again, defeating death. You are beloved by God as well. God gives us the freedom to share love in this world, to share our friendships, to give of our time to those whom we know as well, to share and offer ourselves to people who may aim to hurt us, to those who would, because they too are beloved of God. Not just loved, but beloved of God. My beloved is mine and I am his. Whenever I I read this, and hear this of God, I come back to the gospel passage of Jesus asking Peter after the resurrection in the gospel of John, Simon, do you love me? And Peter says, well, of course, of course I love you. Yeah, I'm Simon, I'm Peter. And he says, feed my sheep. And then he says again, but Simon, do you love me? And Peter says, well, gosh darn it, Jesus, I I sure do love you feed my lambs. And then the third time, Jesus asks him, do you love me? It's like, well, Jesus, I'm kind of offended by this. <laughs> it doesn't, um, it's hard to translate this passage because as some of you know, there's different words for love in Greek and two of them are used here. It's often translated, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? But it's really, it's agape, agape is me. So do you agape love me? Do you sacrificially love for me? And then he says, agape me, a second time, and then he says, Phileis me. Do you love me like a brother? Not, not this kind of idea of impersonal love that I'm going to do all the things for you, but can I do this with you? Can you be a brother to me, Peter? Can, us, can we hold each other up? Living out the love of God is found in the perichoresis, in the dance, in the rotation of contemplation and action, of resting in God and being the hands and feet of God. We see this most clearly in, the, in the, the story of Mary and Martha. When Jesus goes to visit Mary and Martha, these two sisters, and you know Martha's sweet Ben, and Mary's sitting at his feet, and Martha's like 
come on, Jesus, Mary's being lazy. Tell her to do something. And Jesus says, like, no, she is, she is doing what she needs to do. In Protestant circles, often Mary is lifted up really highly and Martha is disparaged and discouraged. Like, oh, you don't want to be a Martha, Martha, Martha. Um, which I'm sure that's where... What is that show? Brady Bunch. Brady Bunch, thank you. Brady Bunch was quoting the Gospel of Luke. <laughs> Obviously. Um, in that, but that's, there's an important... That, that it misses out what is going on. Jesus does not disparage Martha. Uh, Mary could not eat if Martha was not cooking for her. Jesus could not eat. Jesus came to stay at their house, not to just, not to just talk. And so he came to be fed. He came to have a place to sleep at night. There is this powerful connection. Without Mary, Martha doesn't know what to work for. This is the way contemplation and action work together with this mutual Submission, this mutual understanding, this rotation, this dance of, of having, okay, what is our goal? What is the purpose that we have? And then how are we going to respond to it? These mutual submissions and our modes of response cannot be ironed out and neatly organized. And so this is what I'm going to do right now, and this is going to be the completely different thing I do over here. I'm going to be a kind person over here, and then I'm going to not be kind. I'm going to be contemplating over here. It's like we can't... We can't separate these out. They can look like John Wesley's means of grace. They can look like the works of mercy on one hand, the works of outward love and service, and the works of piety on the other hand, the works of of reading the scriptures, of prayer and fasting. But you can't have one without the other. They work together. No one has the energy or or the ability or the, the stamina to actually just serve constantly without being refreshed in the presence of God. And finding ways of doing that. As well, to respond to God's love is not to add something more to your life. So often it seems like that. So often when you hear preachers who who look and sound like me telling you, well, you could do this and you should do this and all these wonderful things that you could get to do. um, It seems like, gosh, there's just no more, no time. (laughs) When am I going to do that? Like, it'd be great to read my Bible, but we don't have an extra hour of the day and I don't have the extra energy. It'd be great to do these, the service opportunities. It'd be great to come to Plus One. It'd be great to do the work corner some weekend. But I just am so tired. And I don't know what it's going to be. And when we start doing these things, when we start doing these things of God, sometimes it's, it can be hard because the desires of our body push back. When we start studying our Bible, when we start praying more, when we start serving the homeless, our selfishness does not like that. <laughs> Our selfishness and pride thinks of wonderful excuses of why we should not serve others. My conceptions of productivity don't like it. I can't fit prayer into my idea of having a productive day. It's not not productive. It doesn't work. In the same way in the parable of the Good Samaritan, when the Levite passes by the man wounded on the street, I bet the Levite's boss was really excited because he didn't miss his job that day. I bet the priest boss was really happy because he, he was a good, efficient worker that day. He didn't stop and help the person in need. And I imagine the Samaritan's boss was really kind of ticked because he didn't show up even. He didn't even make it. He stopped and he put the guy on his donkey and he took him to an inn and he stayed with him. And then it's like he comes in the next day. It's like, where were you? Well, there was a guy wounded on the side of the road. Well, you've got a job and that's it. 
And so often that's what our life seems like. It's like, gosh, I'd like to do that, but I have this that I have to do. And God is not telling us to be horrible at our job, but to hold on to what matters in this world. And to realize that when we offer ourselves to others, our desires are transformed. It's not just that we have more obligations in our day, that we desire different things in our life. When we give the time to God in prayer, we more and more build the habit of wanting to be with God in prayer. When we give God the time in seeing the icon of our God and our neighbor who is in need, we more and more seek out to love God in that way. God transforms my desires in this action of love. And when I receive God's love and proclaim, my beloved is mine and I am his. You are free to love, my brothers and sisters. And that begins now. How will you receive God's love? How will you offer God's love? In this mutual submission of offering ourselves and receiving. How can you help us at Berkeley to offer God's love? How can we be a, be a church that shows and reveals God's love and gives opportunities of sharing in the contemplation of God and the action of serving God? How can you serve this summer? How can you contemplate? How can you take time to be with God this summer? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.